Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. We are glad that you are here with us this morning. We're in a series we've called Why Gather? And we are trying to answer the questions around why do we do what we do here every Sunday? So over the last few weeks, we've talked about gathering as a body with a multitude of gifts. And we've talked about why we celebrate communion every single week. Uh, we've talked about the role of the Holy Spirit in the gathered church and about the role of the scriptures last week. And this week, we are going to try to answer, hopefully, the question, why do we engage in musical worship every Sunday? Why do we play songs? Why do we sing along together? What is it for, and why do we do it? Now, if you know me, or you've stood close to me on a Sunday, you will soon realize that I am not a classically trained musician. In fact, I struggle even pressing the slide buttons for the lyrics at the right time, as was exemplified this morning. I'm not musically inclined. I'm pretty sure if being tone deaf is a diagnosable condition, then I have that. But I love getting to sing together as a church. I love what happens here and in churches around the world on Sunday mornings as the church comes together to sing worship and praise to God. I love the experience, and my assumption is that many of you are like me and that you like what goes on with music, but have never really dove deep into why we sing, why we play music, all of that. So, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. Normally, if you think about music in the Bible, you think about the Psalms, and that would be correct. The Bible has its own built-in songbook. It's 150 songs that have existed for millennia as examples of worship and praise to God. But the Psalms aren't the only place where we see music in Scripture. Now, <clears throat> as we read in Luke 1, what you really need to know, we're, we're going to pick up in verse 46, what you really need to know, if you're not familiar with the story, is that there's this woman named Mary. And Mary receives a promise. And the promise that Mary gets is that even though she's a virgin, she is going to give birth to a son. And that son will be the long-awaited Savior of Israel and the Savior of the whole world. So Mary is excited about this promise that she gets, and she goes to her cousin Elizabeth, and they talk, and then Mary breaks out in song. This happens in Luke 1:46, where we pick up. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, he has, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, this text is formatted uniquely in your Bibles, probably indented as a song or a poem would be. And that's in part because of the, the way the words are structured and how it mirrors a song. 
but also because Mary's song, which is what this passage comes to be known as, it echoes the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. So Hannah is a character in the book of 1 Samuel, and Hannah was similar. She, she was unable to have children for a long time, and then later on in life, she finally has a son. And then in that story, we have a record of her poetic prayer, her song. And Mary, here in Luke, uses a lot of the same language as Hannah does in 1 Samuel. Two women, two songs, in response to what God has done and is doing for these women. And that's what I want us to get from the outset here. Worship is response. At the end of the day, we can talk a lot of we can talk about a lot of things around worship and worship music and singing and praise, but ultimately worship is response. And we're going to tease this out a little bit more and read another text, but before we get there, I know I need to define some terms. In English, specifically in American churches, we use the terms worship and worship music synonymously. So churches have worship pastors. And 99% of the time, that means that that person is in charge of worship music. We have worship conferences, and they are about music. When, when we ask how was worship, we usually mean the music. When we say that what style of worship is it, we are usually referring to the music. Now, I will, hopefully, by the end of my time talking to you, be able to share why I think that music is one of the best and most fitting ways we worship. I always just need to address the fact that worship is about a whole lot more than music. Worship is response. And response to what? It's response to who God is, what he's done, is doing, and will do. Worship is response to God's promises, the promises that he made for all of humanity, but also the promises that he's made to individuals, like we read with Mary. If worship is response, this means that how I live my life as a husband, that is worship. If I do it right, in right response to God, it's worship. How I work is worship. It's response. How I treat my family, my neighbors, that's worship. Worship is not just the 45 minutes worth of music on Sundays or the music that we listen to on specific radio stations. Worship is the entirety of my life. And this is what Paul is getting at when he says in Romans 12:1, he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, to offer everything, to offer all of yourself. So with that is the foundation that worship is all of our lives, all parts of our lives, we can move on. Why did Mary and, and Hannah before her respond to God with song? Why, why do we respond to God with song? Well, if you have your Bible still open, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. There are a lot of different interpretations of Revelation. I, I remember reading Revelation when I was younger and being so weirded out by the descriptions of things with eyes everywhere and horns and wings and just being so confused. And don't worry, we're not going to talk about any of that stuff today. 
But part of the reason it's so confusing for us is that one, we're just so far removed from the original culture it was written to, but also um, because we don't have apocalyptic literature and, and this is just such a unique genre that takes a lot of work to understand. But what I want us to see here, starting down in verse six, about halfway through the, the new paragraph, is this description of what the throne room of God is like. And, and what I want you to do is set aside the idea that this is a vision of what is happening in the future and realize that John, the author of Revelation, is describing to his audience what the throne room of God is like right now. John writes, In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So what we see in, in this vision is that there are all of these people in the throne room of God, and they respond constantly to God for who he is, what he has done, is doing, and will do. This happens over and over and over again as they worship. And then John, the author, writes about the scene later on where Jesus, the, the sacrificed lamb of God, is the one powerful enough to open God's scroll. So if you just flip forward to the next chapter, maybe the next column in your Bible, Revelation 5, we'll pick up in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them 
saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. I know there's a lot going on there, but here's what I want us to see in reading through this picture of what worship looks like in the presence of God. You see, those same creatures and elders who worship God the Father on the throne are the ones who sing a new song and worship Jesus in that same throne room. And then, one layer out from those in the throne room, you have angels. And and how many angels? Well, it's literally as many as you can write in Greek, 10,000 times 10,000. Then another layer out from that, you see every creature on earth and under the earth and on the sea. The, the pictures being that literally everything is worshiping Jesus. These, these creations of God are responding to the creator God for who he is, what he's done, is doing, and will do. What we do here on Sunday morning is a taste, a reflection, a sign, a picture of this description of, of what one day will be true of all creation. This moment in history where Jesus, the creator, is worshipped by the entirety of his creation. Why don't the elders and the angels in creation just say this, though? Why does this happen in music and in song? Music is a funny thing, right? I mean, think about how many different types of songs and music there are in the world. We have national anthems, we have work songs, we have songs that you sing at sporting events, lullabies to put your baby to sleep, songs to dance to, songs to express love, songs to express heartache, songs that that are fun, songs that don't really make sense at all, songs that tell stories, songs that make you think, songs that make you feel, songs that make you smile, songs that make you sad. We have songs we use to teach kids, and think the ABCs, and we have songs we use to play games with, think of Ring Around the Rosie. We have songs that you, you hear that bring you back to that place, or that time, or that relationship. It's songs that make your heart race, songs that you can study to, songs that get you pumped up for the football game, or songs that are good for a long drive. Songs that that maybe accompany the opening of a movie or a TV show or songs that they always play in commercials or stores. We we have songs that we, we sing around campfires. We have songs that marching bands play. We have songs that we sing at Christmas time. Heck, I'm in the army and the army has songs for when you get up in the morning, for when you should, when the flag goes up, when you should eat, when you should get off work. We literally have songs for everything. Music is uniquely universal. We, we actually find musical activities in every known culture as wide as the world. But, but not only in every present culture, but in every human culture that we have record of since time began. Music is a universal human activity. Music is a universal activity, and yet it's deeply personal. Jenna and I were, were having dinner with Hannah and Richard McLeod uh, on Tuesday night, and they told us their story of how they started dating. And it's an awesome story, and you should ask them about it, because Richard had to do a lot of work to pursue Hannah. But what struck me 
from this story was uh, this turning point in their relationship. And Richard, who self-identifies as being not a very good singer, uh, there was this moment where he sang this song to Hannah, and it was this turning point that meant a lot to them. And it was this moment that they can mark out as kind of this reason that they started dating. And it was a song that, that then... Richard sang at their engagement, and even some of the words are engraved on Hannah's wedding ring. Songs and music are universal, but they're also deeply personal. Music's also deeply psychological. Music, we know from modern psychology, engages the human on both an intellectual level, but also an emotional level. Songs can have a physical effect on us. As I mentioned, they can, they can actually make our heart race. They can have an emotional effect. They can make us cry. Songs engage our brains in ways that nothing else except music can do. And this is why music is a fitting way for us to respond in worship. And God's people have historically sung or played or made music in worship. Because music is uniquely able to capture and captivate and express and engage and unite and connect with each and every one of us. Music, in a special way, helps us to communicate that response to God, which is worship, for who he is, what he's done, is doing, and will do. Music allows us to respond to God's promises that he has made to us individually, like with Mary and Hannah, but also the promises he has made to all of creation. Music uniquely is something that can happen across all of humanity and yet connect deeply to an individual. Now, we could also expand this and talk about how much how music brings us together. And music is unifying in that sense. You hear me, I hear you, we're following after one leader, we're singing something in unison, and that's beautiful and uniting. But we could also talk about how how music is the number one way we teach theology. Very few people, if any, walk out of here with words from a sermon stuck in their head. But, but some of us walk out of here with these songs stuck in our heads. So we spend a lot of time and effort in song selection because we know that music and these songs are a crucial way in which we practically teach theology. Now, we could also talk about how music engages our heart and our head in ways that nothing else can. But my main point in all of this is that music uniquely allows us to worship and create space for us to respond to God. It uniquely allows us to worship and create space for us to respond to God. Let me say a little bit more about that. One way to view scripture is as a historical record of God's work in history and God's people in history. You want to know what, what God's worship has been like throughout history? Well, if we were to look through, here's a slide of these passages, but if we were to look through what happens in the Old Testament, worship is accompanied with songs. That happens in the Psalms, obviously, but these passages in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. In the Psalms, you also see instrumental music. Here's this selection from Psalm 33. Praise the Lord with the harp, make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. And then Psalm 93. With the ten-stringed lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. So 
Worship in, in the Old Testament often included instruments, but it was often joyous celebration. Expressions of joy occur over a hundred times in the Psalms, and that often included shouting, which shout for joy is a phrase that occurs over 20 times in the Psalms. Worship and celebration in the Old Testament also even included dancing, because that's what people do when they're rejoicing and celebrating. Here's these two examples, Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. Now, worship wasn't always joy-filled and celebratory. If, if you read the Psalms, you'll see all kinds of examples of lament and pleading and asking why and expressing need and asking for mercy. But, but that is part of the beauty of worship and music. When we respond to God for who he is, what he's done, is doing, and will do, all of the full range of human experience is included in that. Yes, that's happiness and celebration, but that also includes expressing need and lament and desire for God to do what he has promised to do, to set the world right and make all things new. We are able to express all of that in our worship. Now, It's very uncommon for us to sing songs of lament, but the Psalms are not afraid of singing songs of lament. I would love to see a day where we, as a church, we could capture that fullness of musical worship again, as expressed in the Psalms, and that we would be able to worship musically like that. Now, we don't have time to fully dive dive into that, but I do want to say that I would love to be a place where eventually we could express those full range of emotions in our music here, like the worship in the Psalms does. That's an aside, but I think it's an important note. But before I went off in that direction, I I mentioned that through the Psalms in the Old Testament, we see worship and music specifically as including singing, instruments, but also shouting and sometimes dancing in joy. You know what's so odd about that? Where does that happen? Where do people actually shout and sing and dance in celebration for who God is and what he's done? Yeah, almost everywhere in the world. Pretty much everywhere in the world, just not in Western Europe and the U.S. If you've had the privilege to visit churches in other countries and contexts, that sort of worship is the norm. Yet, if I got up here and and started dancing and shouting in the midst of our music, I'd make myself uncomfortable. Now, I I won't pull up the video of Coulter and I dancing at this church in South Africa just to make my point. It was this kind of conga line sort of thing. But, But what I will say is that we want you to feel freedom to express the full range of human emotions in worship. If it's been a difficult week, cry. If today has hit you like a ton of bricks, lament. If you're just overjoyed at at what God is doing in your life, celebrate like you would if your team scored a goal or a touchdown. Clap like, like you're excited about what is happening. We want our Sunday gatherings and our time of musical worship to be the time and place where you can do that business with God in response. Since worship is response and music is able to capture that full range of human experience, I want us 
I want you to feel free to respond to God, to go through the full range of human experience in worship and response to God. Two more texts um, before we close that I think really show us clearly in the New Testament how worship, and even specifically music, is a fitting response to God. These, uh, these two texts are going to be on the screen, but we'll start with Ephesians 2, verses 18 through 20. Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus, and he says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, which, that's, a, that's another teaching for another time, but uh, Paul's main point here is that this getting drunk, if you're getting drunk, that's presented as the exact opposite of what God wants for you, which is filling you with his spirit. Anyways, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul tells the Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's this like step one. And then speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. It's a response and an overflow from our being filled that we sing and make music from. Paul tells a different church in Colossae. We have this from Colossians 3.16. He says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you, richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Paul tells this church, let the message of Christ dwell among you. Let, let Christ's message be, be so much a part of who you are that it's like a prerequisite to receive the message and, and let it dwell among you. As you have that, then you teach and admonish and encourage one another through the same sorts of things, psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. In Ephesians, being filled with the Spirit is step one. Than the command of responding to God with music. In Colossians, letting Christ's message dwell among you is step number one, to then responding to, and notice this, admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, etc. Singing to God. I think these texts show even more clearly how worship is response to God. But notice how music also has this corporate function. Paul tells the church in Colossae that they are to admonish one another in these psalms, hymns, and songs, singing to God. In Ephesus, he says to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs, making music from your heart to the Lord. When you sing, you're not just singing as yourself for yourself. You are singing as part of a body of believers. When I hear you belt out, you're a good, good father. You are teaching and admonishing me. As I mentioned earlier, music has this beautiful unifying function. And as we see here, worship music is not exclusively vertical, but it has this horizontal function as well. I want, I, I desire you to sing with me and I want to hear you sing because I wanna hear your words proclaimed as you sing to God, because that is actually teaching and admonishing and encouraging me. 
the way that you worship without you even realizing it has an impact on the people around you. I'll, I'll use an example of how I've seen this play out. In 2010, I, I had the privilege to travel to Uganda and we visited a handful of churches and for half the time we were up in the northwest of the country. Um, and if you've seen Invisible Children or you've heard of Joseph Kony, Northwest Uganda was part of where he was operating. And so we were engaging with churches and people who had seen civil war, who had seen family members or children killed, people who had seen real difficult situations. And I can distinctly remember this, this one gathering as we were worshiping together, one of the Ugandans just pausing and praying, thank you God for life this day. Now, I can pray that, and it's one thing, but here I am hearing someone pray, thank you for life, and they come from a community that had been racked by civil war and exploitation, and family members and children had been killed. And here this person is, worshiping God, just simply thanking him for life. That, that person who prayed that, has no idea how impactful that simple seven-word statement has been for me. You can be encouraging to someone without even realizing it. As we close, the invitation and, and the calling is to respond to God in worship now, in music, but in every moment of every day of your life. And we worship here now as a gathered church because music creates this unique, special place where we can engage with God in worship, responding to him for his promises, for who he is, for what he's done, for what he is doing, and what he will do. And as we respond, we join in with the rest of creation, looking forward to the day described in Revelation when all of the creation will worship our creator together. Let's pray.